Well, good morning. My name is Mike Holloway, and Pastor Pat has asked me to fill the pulpit this morning for him. It's truly an honor to do that and to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Um, By the way, I usually don't sit in the front row, but since today was I'm preaching, I did. Uh, I'd really encourage you to use these seats. They sound great with the music's on when you sit in those front seats, so take advantage of that if you would. Well, let's talk about the word rest today. The word rest is a a nice word, a pleasant word. Um, I was looking in the newspaper yesterday, and I ran into the word rest a few times uh, in advertisements for mattresses, of all things, because we think rest is uh, something we need, and we do, and it's something that revitalizes us. Um, We think of rest oftentimes in in, uh, association with a vacation Uh, We're going to have rest and relaxation. We're going to get away from the everyday worries and cares of either work or whatever's going on in your life and take a break. Perhaps uh, some of you uh, took a little extra time off over the holidays and you had a little extra rest from the normal everyday things that you do over the holiday weekends. Rest is a calming word. It's a word that uh, we think, well... I don't have to have worries or cares. Uh, Rest means literally to cease from your labor, to cease from work. But most of us, we don't have a lot of rest in our everyday lives sometimes. Things get in the way of peace or rest. Things like financial troubles, economic concerns, uh, things in our personal lives. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's our health. These things all tend to want to stuff themselves into our lives at times where we'd rather not deal with them. Today we're going to talk about where is true, ultimate rest found in a turbulent and troubled world. The outline for today's message, which is from Psalm 95, so if you'd turn to Psalm 95 in your Bibles... We will start there. Point number one, joyfully worship the Lord, verses 1 through 7. Point number two, today do not harden your heart, the last half of verse 7 through verse 10. And point number three, enter God's ultimate rest through faith. We are going to start off appropriately with point number one, joyfully worshiping the Lord. Please uh, follow along with me as I read the first seven verses of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is a psalm. Remember the psalms as the song book of Israel. It is a psalm that would have been used as we approach the Sabbath, 
as the Jewish nation got ready to worship the Lord. This was a psalm that would take them into that worship and put their frame of mind in the right place. And notice how it starts. Oh, come, gather around, everybody. We're going to worship. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Clearly, there's an acknowledgement right off the bat that this Lord is the Lord of my salvation. He is my rock. Salvation is achieved only through Him. Nowhere else. And that puts me in right relationship to my God as I approach worship. I am the one who has been saved by the Lord. Verse 2, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Singing is very appropriate as we come forward to Him. That's what He's saying here. And not just singing, but we ought to be shouting joyfully. Hopefully it's melodic shouting. But uh, we want to come before God in a joyful, exuberant, excited, and quite honestly, loud fashion when we sing. It is appropriate that we do that. And in doing so, we come before Him in thanksgiving. Recognizing all the things that He has bestowed upon us. Understanding that He is the source of all blessing, of all good. That we ourselves, in and of ourselves as sinners, don't deserve anything of good from Him. We are deserving of punishment and death. But yet He has provided Many, many, many blessings. And we are to be thankful for those blessings as we approach Him. Verses 3, 4, and 5 on this psalm is a statement of God's sovereignty. That God is in control. That He made the earth. That He controls the earth. Read them with me. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. God is not saying here that there's all these kinds of gods and I'm the best. No, he's saying all these other kinds of gods don't exist and I am the one true God. Turn over with me to Psalm 96 real briefly. Just the next psalm over for verse 5. You pick this up even more clearly. 96 verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the peoples are idols. I am the one true God. Verse 4, it picks up this idea of God as creator. In whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Two points here. The earth is in his hand. The world is in his hands. There is a sense of immensity with our God. That he is so great. He is so far above. He is, he is so mag, mag, magnificent that he can hold the universe, the world, in his hand. The other point that's being made here with this idea of his hand is what do we generally associate our hands with? An open hand is thought of as caring, tenderness. 
concern? What do we do when we walk in the church door with others that we meet? Well, as, as men, we shake hands. It's a greeting. It's a warm thing. Um, that's the idea here. God cares for this world. The world is in his hand. He cares for it. He takes care of it. The idea that the peaks of the mountains are his, the depths of the sea, it's just all-encompassing. There is nothing that is present in this universe apart from his sovereign creation and control. From the highest mountain to the depths of the ocean, God has it all in his hand. And we are to approach that with an attitude of thanksgiving. Another attitude comes forth in verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Bowing down before God, kneeling before God, is an act of humility. We talked about salvation in verse 1. Now the psalmist moves on to talk about humility. We approach God in a lowly and humble state. We are to bow before Him. The idea is your face to the ground. In the word worship is the idea of prostrating yourself before God. Do we do that? In our prayers, do we do that? Are we that willing to physically display before our Lord our humility and lowliness? Because I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. I am not acceptable before Him as I am. It's only through His work and the death of Jesus Christ that I can approach Him, that I can even come in to His throne room and pray to Him or worship Him. My worship is not acceptable to Him if I don't come in that attitude in that state. And here the psalmist is proclaiming, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Here he comes back to this idea of Creator. Um, My children tell me that uh, I always bring up that God's my creator whenever we pray for meals. Um, Yeah, I do. I think it's important. I think it's an acknowledgement of my own humility and who I am every time I say, God, you, the creator, the maker of all things. That puts everything that's before me on the table in proper perspective, doesn't it? It puts everything in my life in proper perspective. He is the maker and controller of it all. And the psalmist is saying, worship him because of that. Bow down, kneel. Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Very reminiscent almost of John chapter 10 and Jesus as portrayed as the good shepherd in John chapter 10 here, at the very end of verse 7. We are the people of His pasture. God's children are the people of His pasture. The obvious direct implication of verse 7 applies to Israel, but it also applies to all of His children through the ages. 
We are the people of the pasture and the sheep of his hand. Again, this idea that he is the caring shepherd. He is watching over. He is taking care. He is not a detached God. He is not an impersonal God. Rather, he is a personal God who cares, who is involved. He takes care of us like a shepherd does his sheep. So the very first part of this psalm is all involved in getting ready to worship the Lord. In proclaiming who He is, He is our rock, He is our salvation. We are to be thankful to Him. We are to bow before Him in acknowledgement of our sin and the fact that He is the Creator of all things. Nothing exists apart from Him. Well, that's all a nice positive message, pretty much. We can all say that's great. And in many churches, we would stop right there. We wouldn't go on to the rest of this psalm. Because the rest of this psalm is a warning. The first part of this psalm sets the stage for what is to come. The first part of this psalm tells us how great our God is, why He deserves to be worshipped, what our attitude in worship ought to be. But now as we come to the second part of this psalm, things change dramatically. The tone changes. Even notice that the voice changes. The psalmist is talking about God in the first six and a half verses. You will see God talking directly to his people in the last four and a half verses. Follow along with me as I pick up in the second half of verse 7 through the end of the chapter. Today, if you would hear his voice, the psalmist is calling to the people, today, if you would hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. That's pretty severe. That's pretty tough. You mean this God that we just talked about as Savior? Uh, This God that we just talked about as Maker? This God that we talked about with the world in His hand and caring for His sheep talks like this? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Now, for the Jews of this day, this psalm was probably written around the time of David. About 450, 500 years before that, are the events that it's talking about in the last half of the psalm. The Jews of this day would have been very familiar. They would have been drenched in the details of what the psalmist is talking about. We, however, from our 21st century perspective, are not quite so up to speed with what the psalmist is talking about from the book of Exodus. So let's turn back there. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. If you go all the way to the front, you'll find Genesis, and let's then go to Exodus chapter 15. 
Let's get familiar with what the psalmist is talking about. In the book of Exodus, it is the story of the freeing of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It is the story of how God raised up a man named Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to basically rebel against Pharaoh and cross through the Red Sea. God parted the waters miraculously, allowing them to cross through the Red Sea into the wilderness and escape Pharaoh's army. And then God closed the waters back over Pharaoh's army, drowning them as they were pursuing the people of Israel. God led the people. He led them by a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as they started on their journey, some significant events happened. Keep in mind, this is not a small group of people that left Egypt. This is probably a group of about 2 million. We are told 600,000 men and their families. So a large group of people. And God is taking care of them as they are on the way. Chapter 15, verse 22 is where we'll start looking at the events that are talked about in Psalm 95. Exodus 15:22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. Merah means bitterness. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So the people headed out into the, into the wilderness, They are getting thirsty. They grumble and complain to Moses. Moses talks to God. God provides. He provides water for them. Let's go over to chapter 16, just a couple verses down. Verse 2. They traveled on to the next place in the wilderness. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Notice who the target of the grumbling is. Moses and Aaron. Verse 3. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, we've moved on to advanced grumbling now. Okay, We had beginning grumbling before, now we have superior grumbling. Um, They not only now are complaining that they don't have any food, they're thinking, wasn't it great back in Egypt when we were slaves? We had bread, we had meat, and now, Moses, you've brought us out here to kill us. By the way, keep in mind, God had already protected them from the army of Pharaoh, taken them through the Red Sea, killed Pharaoh's army, and had provided water for them. Well, what happens next? Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, 
that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring, bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So God is now going to provide bread for them. They complained, they grumbled. He's providing bread. Pretty gracious, I'd say. He's doing what he needs to do to sustain them in the wilderness. Well, let's go down to verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it was. So not only do they get bread, now they get variety. They get meat in the evening, they get bread in the morning. He's provided for them, hasn't he? We are told in in Genesis 22, he is the God who provides, and he has provided what they need in the wilderness. Well, now let's turn over to chapter 17. You might think that was the end of the matter. They might be satisfied now. They've got everything they need. We're going to be able to move on from all this grumbling. (laughs) You have another think of coming. Genesis, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Well, you kind of get the feeling we're going to get an instant replay here. God has been providing all along, hasn't he? They've grumbled, he's provided. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses knows who they're complaining against. They're not complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God and his provision. Verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Here comes that refrain again. All right? Instant replay. Verse 5. I'm sorry. Let's stop in verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. This crowd, this mob, is on the verge of executing Moses for leading them into the wilderness. They have not only got to the place where they've repeated this once, they've now repeated it again. We're going to die out here, and God, it's all your fault. Um, Who are they trusting in? Are they trusting God to provide? Has he given them good reason to trust him? Hasn't he provided nearly everything they need? Yes, he has provided everything they need. Now, he might not have provided everything they want, but he provided everything they need. They have shelter, they have food, they have water. He's taken care of them. Well, verse 5, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, they were really testing God. That's what they were doing. The word Meribah means place of strife strife or rebellion. The word Massa means temptation or trial. means testing. And that's why this place was named that. is because the people of Israel are testing God. They are putting Him on trial. They are rebelling against Him. They are not being submissive to the leader God had appointed in Moses. And Moses and God fully understand that in doing so, They are rebelling against the Lord. They are shaking their fist at Him and saying, God, You aren't providing like You should. Let's turn back to Psalm 95. Now this whole episode... Not just this event at Massa and Meribah, which is different names for the same place. This whole episode is capped off by the sending of the 12 spies into Israel. Because the ultimate land of rest, the ultimate place of rest, or I should say the immediate place of rest, that the Israelites were headed to was the promised land. The idea was we were going to leave Egypt and we were going to head over to the promised land that God had promised to our father Abraham four centuries earlier. So they get there. They're ready to go into the promised land. And being good military tacticians, they're going to send in some spies to check it out. Well, 12 spies go in. What do they find? They find a land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful place, where instead of picking up the manna and the quail every morning and evening they would be able to live off the fruit of this land. But ten of the spies come back and they say, you know, those people in there, they're really big. And they look really tough. And they've got fortified cities. There's no way we can take that. Two of the spies, on the other hand, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, yep, that land flows with milk and honey. Yep, those people in there, they're really big. Yeah, they got fortified cities. But we've got the Lord. And He can defeat them all. Well, who do you think these uh, grumbling Israelites followed after? The ten or the two? The ten. You know the story. They chose to wander around the wilderness rather than go into the land. I used to teach uh, children's church quite frequently. And we'd always come up with this lesson about once a year. And I remember one particular year, it was a nice warm day outside. 
I took them all out to the, the parking lot. We were at the West Side Community Education Center then. Took them all, took all the kids out at the parking lot. Believe me, we don't have nearly the number of kids then as you do now. And we go out there and we marched around the parking lot. And I had the kids march around and we would chant, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I want to go back to Egypt. And we'd do this for, you know, a good 10 or 15 minutes. Kids loved it. They got to be outside. It was a relatively decent day. But I was trying to pound home with those kids that these Israelites didn't want to go to the place of rest that God had prepared for them. And instead, they chose to rebel against God. They would rather have gone back to slavery because they accused God of wanting to kill them in the desert. Remember their question at the end of chapter verse 7, Exodus 17? Is the Lord with us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? What kind of question is that for the people of God to be saying? After all God had done, is the Lord with us or not? Now, I'm old enough, back in the 70s, there was a nice big cover page on Time magazine. Is God dead was the question. Is God dead? Isn't that really the same question these Israelites were asking? Is this God that led us out of Egypt, is he really God or is he no God at all? Is he here or is he gone? Well, he'd made it pretty clear. He was taking care of them, but they wanted none of it. Turn back with me to Psalm 95. Turn back with me to Psalm 95. Let's read that once again now that we know the background. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation. How many things do you truly loathe? I can't think of a lot. It's also kind of along the idea of disgusting. Loathing and disgusting kind of go together. And their rebellion against God, after he had chosen them as his people, after he had provided them with everything they needed, after he was ready to bring them into the promised land, provide victory over their enemies, their reaction to all of that caused God to loathe them, to be disgusted with them. Those are strong words, loathing and disgusting. Let's read on. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. What was the cause of the problem? It's right there in verse 10. It's their heart. They don't have changed hearts. They haven't trusted in God. Not fully. They they trusted enough to follow out of Egypt, didn't they? They trusted enough 
to go behind, between the, the, the divided Red Sea. They trusted enough to get a little ways out in the wilderness, but they didn't really trust enough. They really didn't have faith in God to the place where they trusted Him to provide for their water and for their food and for their clothing and for their shelter and for victory in the land of, in the land of Canaan. They didn't trust him that much. They trusted him as far as they could see and as far as their bellies felt good and as far as, well, you name it. They weren't wholly committed to God. And God's evaluation of them is really harsh. It's really harsh. And how does he sum this psalm up? Verse 11, Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. I swore in my anger. Now the immediate fulfillment of this is the promised land, the land of Canaan that he had promised to move them into. But the ultimate fulfillment of this, ultimate rest or ultimate salvation Spending eternity with the Lord and in His care, in His abode in heaven, is ultimately in view. How do we know that? Well, fortunately, Hebrews chapter 3 provides us a really convenient and wonderful interpretation of Psalm 95. Turn there with me. Turn to the book of Hebrews, towards the back of your Bible. If you've got to Revelation, you're too far. Just start backing up. You'll run into Hebrews pretty soon. Hebrews chapter 3, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to take us right in to the New Testament by interpreting Psalm 95. If you're in Hebrews 3, you'll see in verse 7, starts out, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, And then verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 are quoted directly from Psalm 95. The author of the Hebrews is writing writing to Jewish Christians in New Testament times after Christ has died on the cross. These Jewish Christians, he is writing to Jews, pardon me, not just Jewish Christians. He is writing to unbelieving Jews as well. He is writing to them and he is talking to them about how they need to give up the Old Testament law and the things that Christ fulfilled when He was here on earth and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Some of these Jews wanted to mix up what was going on. They wanted to hold on to their Jewish traditions and the things they did as well as have Jesus Christ. In other words, they didn't want to trust Christ alone. They wanted Christ plus some things that they could do. Now, it's really clear in the Old Testament, people are saved by faith in the revelation that God had given of, his, of himself. Abraham, the great example of faith, in Genesis 15, we are told, believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Deuteronomy 6, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 when asked, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? He says it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
So faith and belief in God is clearly the way to salvation in both the Old and the New Testament. And here, as we come to this people, they want to hang on to some other things. These Jews want to hang on to some of their own works and ceremonies from the Old Testament law. They don't want to give that up. But yet they still want to talk about Jesus. And in reality, you cannot do that. And what's going on here is the writer of the Hebrews is warning them about stopping short of true, genuine, fully committed faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read what he has to say, starting in verse 12. Take care, brethren. He's talking to the Jews in general, both the believing Jews and the non-believing Jews. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we may see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The root of their sin was their unbelief. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying to the Jews of his day, the root of your sin is unbelief. You must believe. And you must be all in. You must 100% believe in Jesus Christ. You must commit your life to Jesus Christ. Nothing else can be there. Only that. Only that. He goes on to give them a warning in the first verse of chapter 4. In light of all this, the word therefore starts out verse 1. Therefore, in light of all this, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. His fear is, is that these Jews are, have heard the gospel. They understand that they are sinners. They understand that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sin on the cross. They understand the call to believe in Christ. And while they understand it, they haven't made the jump. They haven't made the commitment. They've stopped short of what needs to be done. An illustration might be a man on top of a ten-story building. The fire's raging down below him. The firemen have prepared a net down below. 
The net's there. Everything's set to go. All he's got to do is jump. But it's a long ways down. He's never been a hundred plus feet off the ground before and told to jump. Everything's there. He just has to jump to save his life. But he can't, he can't get off of that because he doesn't really know whether he'll make it or not. See, some of us, my fear is for Omaha Bible Church and other churches where the gospel is faithfully preached and the word taught is that we have people, and I know we do, we have people who have a head knowledge of the gospel. They have a head knowledge of God's word. They comprehend it. They, they, they understand it in a fashion. But you know, it's not about having head knowledge. It's not about being able to spout off the answers to the Bible quiz. It's about a love and commitment to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. And it has to be a full commitment to Jesus Christ. Not half, not a little bit, but all. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. This is nothing new. Christ spoke about it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus is speaking in verse 37, and he's comparing what in many ways in this world is the greatest love that we have, and that is love for our parents or love for our children. And he's putting those in perspective relative to the relationship with him. Verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. See, to follow Christ means you have to be willing to lose your own life and live for him. To give up the things that are most important to you the things you cherish the most in your sinful state and give it up to Him. Now, that doesn't mean you can't love your father and mother. doesn't mean you can't love your children. Those are all great things. But Christ makes it clear that in comparison to your love for your family, He has to come first. That's where your commitment has to be. And it has to be such a commitment that you're willing to give your life for it. As many martyrs in the first few centuries of the church did. It's not an option to hold back. It's not an option to say, I'm not going to go that far. So for us as believers, we are called to worship our God. Psalm 95 calls us to be a people who are thankful, 
to be a people that shout joyfully in our songs to the world around us of how much we love and worship this God, the Creator of all things, the One who took us from the lowly state, the humble state of being a sinner and saved us from our sins. This rock of our salvation deserves our praise. We also have a responsibility to tell others. That's important for us as well. But if you're among those who have not yet placed your faith in Christ, ultimate rest is available for you too. Those who are His children will come to Him. And you are invited today. Four times in Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer to the Hebrews quotes that passage that says, Today, if you will hear His voice. Hear the voice of God today. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. We will finish with this passage. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Here is Jesus' invitation to rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That doesn't mean God's going to make you rich. It doesn't mean you're always going to be healthy. But it means in light of those circumstances, if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ, you can handle all those things in light of where your ultimate rest will be. In light of the fact that ultimate rest will be with God in His abode, in His dwelling place in heaven. Faith in Jesus Christ is what's called for. Today is the day to make that decision. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, the creator of all things, you are truly a magnificent God. You are the God who provides. We are so thankful, Father, for your provision for us in so many ways and in in ways we don't even see or understand. You have provided for us. We thank you for that. You have provided salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. You have called us today to turn to Him in faith, to hear Your voice. I pray, Father, that if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ, that even today they would come to faith, that Your children would respond in faith to You. We thank You, Lord, for all the blessings You've provided. We humbly come before You now and worship you both in song and in word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.